Wallace to his left, and he's on his way. 10, 9, 5, 3, cut down! Wonderful try! We have a mole, Jim. Digs like a demented mole there. He just bursts through the defence. Just watch this. Spillane gathers beautifully. In go the Irish forwards. This is Lenahan. Bursting into the 22. Back to Bradley. Back to Kiernan. The drop at goal is over. Michael Kiernan has done it. Touch it down, Bundy. Good evening and welcome to the Mullcast. Good evening. Put the ball down, Bundy. Let's start where everyone wants to start. Putting the boot into Eddie Jones. My I could, pleasure. I um, I saw what I, I consider to be the key passage of that match as I was traveling on Sunday, watching on a phone. Australia had a penalty in front of the sticks. They declined a kick a goal when they were 10-6 down. They kicked to the corner. They threw a line out where no one jumped. Three people fell over. A Welsh forward caught the ball and he kicked a 50-22, which is an absolutely amazing kick. I think... I wasn't surprised when I heard later on the finals, well, that Australia lost. I was surprised at the margin. What an utter collapse by Australia. A huge collapse. Easily the worst performance I've ever seen from an Australian team by easily the worst Australian team I've ever seen in rugby union. Uh, They were were shambolic for about 60 minutes of that match. You could see the confidence drain out of them and just drain into Wales. Wales started really well, but you could see, and Gatland has said, they thought it was going to be like a really tough game. And by the end of it, you know, the old cliche applied, if it was a fight, if it was a boxing match, the ref would have stopped it. Australia were atrocious. And... You know, given that the most recent time I saw Australia live was when they gave Ireland a huge scare in November 2022 under Dave Rennie, you can only make the, make the argument, you can only make the assessment that they have gone incredibly downhill under Eddie Jones. And I would put him as the main reason that Australia are going to get knocked out of the group stages of the World Cup for the first time in their history. It's hard to argue with it, because draw a line from, from those matches uh, in what was like an indi- an injury-ravaged team uh, that Rennie had in that autumn tour. And you think to yourself, the Aussies are pretty good. Like, they're... They're well coached. They they know what they're doing. They make life awkward. They've got athleticism, and it's it's been shocking because Eddie Jones wanted this Aussie gig more than any other job in world rugby. Uh, you read his book and you see like what a big deal it was from to get the Aussie gig the first time around. How much he loved it, how much it was the job that meant more to him than anything else. And I really like Eddie Jones as a coach. Um, I suppose I've always, obviously, been at a distance from him. So I, I kind of like his, I like his passion for the game. Like it, it maybe 
outweighs or overshadows is probably a better word some of his dickheadedness mm-hmm. um but it has been an absolute disaster of a campaign yeah it's um, been a, an absolute disaster of a regime which is what i'll call it since he started like they've won one game and um it's like my my take on it is like what he's done in eight months for australia is lead them by their nose into the fucking dirt and it's it follows on from two years of of him doing you know pretty much the same with england that's why he got sacked now england didn't have as poor performances as australia have because england had a, <clears throat> a stronger team but they went downhill so his graph is downhill at 45 degrees and then downhill at about 75 degrees with Australia for three years. It's been all downhill. Sorry, there might there might have been there was a tour in summer of 2022 to Australia when England actually won. So it leveled off there. It didn't get any better. It just leveled off. Then it was downhill again. And with Australia, it's been straight downhill. They've been atrocious under Eddie Jones. And never more atrocious than in, in the game against Wales. Uh, I just find so many reasons to find fault of them. I've, I've read articles today in which Sterling Mortlock, uh, former captain, and George Green, a former legend, have both said they have to stick with him. I just absolutely think you don't have to stick with him. You have to sack him. Have to sack him. This fella who has clearly been consumed by his ego to the point where he took over a team with eight months to go to a World Cup and decided that in eight months he could change everything, throw away all the work that his predecessor had, had done. His predecessor was essentially sacked because Eddie Jones came on the market. Dave Rennie was sacked because England sacked Eddie Jones. They weren't going to sack Dave Rennie eight months out from a World Cup, and they fucking shouldn't have, clearly. Um, but that's that's why Dave Rennie got the sack. His win percentage was poor at Australia, but Australia weren't really a good team. And in November against Ireland... They gave, we were we were still number one then, we were playing at home. They gave the hell of a scare. It was one of the few games in which the better team on the day lost. They lost, you know, they led almost every meaningful metric in that game. It finished 13-10. We got a, a penalty kick from a very reasonable distance out by uh, Ross Byrne in the 75th minute. They suffered a load of injuries in that game. They had no Cerevi or Corobete. Corobete has been their most recent John Eels medal winner. Uh, Karevi was nominated for World Player of the Year in the past two of their most explosive and best backs and they still gave us a really good game gave us an incredibly hard time in that game hardest match of the year in my opinion uh, certainly hardest home game of the year the game against France was very difficult away in Parc de France so from that from that performance I remember saying at the time and saying on this pod Australia are my dark horses and my god like their performance in this campaign I remember relatively recently within the last like two or three weeks they were going oh we got a good win against Georgia you're going you saw how Georgia played the other day uh, like Georgia not a good team you know and the Australians go like we beat Georgia what it's 37-19 or 37-16 you're just going it's like so fucking what but his his decision to just cull so many of the leaders and the experienced players in that team primarily Michael Hooper but also Bernard Foley, Quade Cooper, 
uh, Reese Hodge, uh, like to get rid of all this experience in the team, to take a, a squad of thirty three to take players like he's taken Fraser Wright or Fraser McWright to the World Cup instead of Michael Hooper, and you're going, that's the fucking stupidest decision I've ever. Maybe maybe that has ever occurred in Australian rugby. Like, and there's been a few. James O'Connor was selected at 10 for, in the Lions series by Dingo Deans. I remember thinking that was a bit bonkers. But like, well, it was really worth fucking dropping Michael Hooper to bring Fraser McWright to that tournament. And you know, like, I don't know Fraser McWright. I don't wish him any ill will, but like, that's a fucking terrible decision. Like, name names here. That's a stupid decision. You know, we picked 14 guys to go to a World Cup with five caps or less, 14 of them. That, like, what do you think you're going to, you you have a fucking, you're on a really easy side of the group, you're, sorry, side of the draw, in a, in a really winnable group. Like, you can get all the way to the semi-final, and instead you go and pick a load of lads who've never played international rugby, like, basically never played international rugby, and go, oh, these are the guys who are asking for a selection, you're going, no, they're not, man. You are blind to what the other players bring. You've made yourself blind over all these years with your egocentricity, thinking you're the only one who understands or knows about rugby. So dropping all these guys, oh, what? Because you're not going to need experience in, in the World Cup. That's one of the most important things you need. Like the teams that win World Cup are experienced teams for the most part. And when I say for the most part, they are experienced teams. They always have experienced players. So this, this selection was the first issue of so many novices to international rugby. And, and I have to say that, that it wasn't greeted with as much dismay in Australia. It's also the Australians still living on this fucking, oh, if he's good enough, he's young enough. I'll throw the young guys in. You go, oh, man, this, this attitude is just so, like if you want romance, go and read a novel. You know, go and read Percy Bysshe Shelley or Byron's poems like this is this is rugby it's a sport romance has a small part to play in it yeah but so do a lot of other things like dependability resilience leadership experience toughness you know the Australian showed none of those things those things which are far more important in sport especially in rugby I think the most <clears throat> damning part about Eddie Jones's tenure as Aussie boss this time is that he didn't immediately, he didn't come in and go, okay, I'm a new broom. This is a, you know, a losing culture here. He played all the players that he already had. He played the Michael Hoopers, the Quade Coopers in his initial bunch of games in the, in the rugby championship. And then he, something snapped in him where he said, I'm going to jettison them all. I watched, uh, I watched, I try and catch up on the, what the New Zealand media thinks about rugby. So I always think it's interesting because they're very far away and they're very knowledgeable. They're very knowledgeable. They're also a bit like uh, myopic as well. It's kind of interesting to see when they have to think about Ireland. Um, but there was one bit where they were talking about celebrating how the, the massive achievements of players like Sexton, you know, breaking Ireland's points record and Sam Whitelock is... Going to break Richie McCaw's. Closing in on yeah. Richie McCaw's record. And just like, you know, just, and then just being like, you know, generally talking about the quality of these players, the way they've lasted so long, what an achievement it is to to do these things. And the fact that, like, 
I think Quay Cooper's had a lot of chances, and I wouldn't. I w- if if Eddie Jones wanted to move on from him, I'd be sort of like, well, maybe there's someone else coming through. But like Michael Hooper, whether he had an injury that kept him out of one game, two games, or three games, you didn't bring him. Your captain, your leader, the best Australian rugby player for the last five years. That's fucking criminal stuff. It's crazy. 125 caps, and he's brilliant. And four he's brave times, as a lion. Four times. And yeah, and he is on the downside of his career, but he still brings a hell of a lot more overall than any of their other back rows to the team. This guy's been voted by uh, Australia. He's four times John Eels medal winner. Like, that's more than John Eels. <laughs> you know? as many as George Smith. <laughs> it's twice as many as George Smith. For the John Eels medal? Yes. Like, George Smith got two. The next one up is uh, Israel Falau, three. Really? Pretty sure. So that's, that's I mean, that, that decision to, to flick that switch at that point of the, of the journey just seems so, so misguided. Can I give you another, another, which is more sort of classic Eddie? So about a month before, less than a month before the, Rugby World Cup kicked off. You have, you know, a significant assistant coach, like a senior assistant coach, when I say that, I mean attacker defense, leaving, in this case, for family reasons. But, like, no one ever knows what those are. Brad Davies left in mid-August. So you're going, this is this is not unusual for Eddie Jones. He loses coaches, assistant coaches. All the, Rob Kearney spoke about this in the build-up on, on TV3, I think. And he was saying, like, this is just a pattern for him. And as I said before, it, the pattern that has repeated itself is England going downhill, takes on Australia, Australia going downhill, coaches leaving. So they go in, like imagine, imagine you completely change the squad uh, from the, the, what they call the 2022 spring tour to, to the World Cup tour. Like the next squad he picked, well, bar one. You completely change that around. And then you have an assistant coach in for the rugby championship and then you sack him or you fall out, whatever, whatever it is, he leaves. Like it's another, that has been become a, a classic Eddie Jones syndrome thing, losing an important assistant coach. So, you know, the, the other things which I don't expect to see uh, from an Eddie Jones team are how stupidly they play. Like, this is a team in, in two matches, the most recent two matches. They gave away three bonehead. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to limit it to three because these are the ones I clearly remember. Rory Arnold against Fiji, Tom Hooper, and Valentini against Wells. Just these absolutely fucking stupid. Running around the side of a ruck and tackling somebody within a kickable penalty distance. I'm just going, oh. Like, and guys going after us. It's like, oh, I forgot the laws of rugby. Like these are all just three points going over the bar in the World Cup. It's it's not something that you can afford to forget about. You know, I know Valentini won. There's a lot of talk about that. Like, I knew that law, and I knew he was going to give away a penalty as soon as he did it. Like, he should not have done what he did. That's just, just jumping on the ball, which is just out of the rock, just running around the side and jumping. I don't understand why that's a penalty. That's, a, that's the law. I know and that, that was discussed, you know. So you have this stupid team. They have a team who makes bad decisions in scoring positions. We talked about the uh, the decision to go for the line instead of kick the easy goal. Like when you're right in front of the sticks and you can throw it over with your bad hands, you kick a goal. You know, that is just, that's just a gimme. Unless, unless you're in, you know, five minutes to go and you need 
to score one try and a conversion to win. So it's that was primarily their their discipline has been catastrophic for a long time. Like they make stupid decisions with and without the ball. Like Australia used to be renowned as, you know, a smart, smart rugby team, an intelligent rugby team. You know, that they were ahead of the curve. They're so far behind the curve now and they make stupid decisions. And they make stupid decisions just in terms of like their catch pass. Oh, I'm going to throw a stupid offload to nobody. Like you have a really talented number 13, like Bataille and, and some of his, like he hasn't grown as a player in four years. Like he made his debut as a teenager under, under, uh, under four years ago in the World Cup and he's like, this guy's a good player under Cheka. And, mm-hmm. and now you're looking at him going, look, Bataille's like still incredibly athletic and you can see how, what a good player you could be. Just, like he's so explosive, such a good spin move, such a step off. Each was fast. You know, this fella is still like he doesn't seem to have learned any rugby in four years. And then that has a knock-on effect. The lack of confidence, the lack of leadership. But they made Tate McDermott captain the scrum half. Nothing particularly wrong with him. Confidence went out of him as it went out of other players. But there's just no leadership in that team. You know, Slipper's been captain before. Slipper, funnily enough, they were playing him on the tight end side and he got greatly rewarded by uh, Wayne Barnes in the first half of scrum. And then they take him off and they bring on one of these other one-cap lads. And all of a sudden, Wales just turned that scrum around. And you're going, geez, like, oh. I understand Slipper's like relatively old and very old for an Australian. You know, they tend to jettison guys at 31, 32. But like, you're going well in the scrum in the first half and you take Slipper off and then your scrum's getting fucked. So... Unless Slipper is like catastrophically injured, just leave him on. He's your only leader there. Um, so just just a huge amount of problems. And then like basically like Matt Williams and Rob Kearney, again, we're talking about this. Kearney looking at the screen conscious, they're so slow to get into defensive shape. It's so easy to kick for space against them. Um, and you're just looking at a badly coached team. So they like they deserve to get knocked out. That's what struck me, and uh, again, I my flight was delayed, and I only got to watch the first half. But and I said it last week, like I, we all said kind of expected Australia to win um, by more than I expected them to lose. Uh, to put it that way, like I wasn't wholly convinced because they've been bad in their first match, but I thought they just had enough try scoring ability. And I was less than convinced by Wales. But again, when I looked at Wales, similar to the, the match against Fiji, I thought to myself, they've all the hallmarks of a Gatlin team mm. in that they're well organized and they're fit. And um Gaddy's done very well by Wales with that. And Wales done very well by Gaddy. Um whereas Australia were so loose. And <clears throat> like I I remember reading green and gold we're talking around 20 years ago i can't Mm. remember if it was after jones had lost the job the first time or if it was during the end of his tenure but the guys on it were saying like he's he's too structured and i he's and like while rob mckean was structured like eddie jones is, is way too structured this brumby rugby and i i don't know if that was something that always got to him that a guy who grew up at mark ella and was such a fan of mark ella 
the older he gets and the more kind of like the, the fewer opportunities, he just has this idea in his head of like this unstructured, just guys playing it. Because it's something that he would, he referred to particularly when he was with England, like the idea of the rover role, the idea of playing like someone like Jack Now yeah. as a flanker. Players who can play idea, anywhere. Players that can play anywhere. And the fact that the English as like culturally, like didn't, <coughs> didn't play touch, like, you know, did, didn't have footballers. And... Like a lot of that stuff resonates with me. I I like that. Um, but then I was looking at the Aussies and I was looking at the athleticism and I was looking at the amount of opportunities they were creating. Probably not in the right in the right part of the pitch. And then they just throw an incredibly loose pass. And you're thinking to yourself, oh, you can't you can't do that in international rugby. Like the the, the players you're playing, the the teams you're playing against are too good. Like they're. They're too well prepared. The the players are like the players are trying here. Like they're good. There isn't there isn't massive gaps for this looseness. And like, what is it? Is is it the difference between romance and fantasy? That 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 kind of tale of you know boy meets girl and it all works out is like someone fantastical. Like not not that that stuff doesn't happen, but like it's just. As a genre, he he slipped from one into another, mm. and you kind of wonder, like, what? I don't know, like, what what sort of interview did he do? Like, somebody somebody had to appoint him. They had to get they had to get rid of Dave Rennie in order to appoint uh, Eddie Jones. So the, the chairman of Rugby Australia is Hamish McLennan, who's an ex Rupert Murdoch News Corps employee, and. Up until relatively recently, I think in May of this year, the CEO was Andy Marinos, who actually played for Wales, but is an Australian, played rugby league and rugby union. He's a Safa, I think, isn't he? Is he a Safa? He's a Safa, Andy Marinos, yeah. Um, anyway, yeah. But anyway, so when when the appointment of Eddie Jones was announced, Hamish McLennan was all, his his quotes on the, on the Rugby Australia website are all like, we had a chance to get the best coach in the world and we've done it. This is massive for Australia. And then... Marinos's quotes were like, Dave Rennie's done a great job. We have a lot to be thankful for him for. He's left us in a much better place. So McLennan was all spouting about Jones. Marinos was all saying, the coach we've let go did a great job. Literally didn't mention Eddie Jones at all in his quoted comments. And about four months later, because it happened in January, about four months later, Marinos re- uh, resigned from CEO out of, essentially out of the blue. It was announced and... Hamish McLennan was actually generous in his praise. He said, this is how much he's delivered for us. He got the uh, he got the union back into the black for the first time in four years. He's sealed the Lions tour. He got us over the line with the hosting the World Cup. He set in place a four-year contract term. He's massively strengthened the world. So he sounds like he did a really good job. And my reading of the situation with no insider information on the other side of the world, of course, is that Marinos didn't agree with getting rid of Rennie thought it was way too much of a risk to bring in Jones, maybe, and, and resign. Now, it could have been a whole other reason, but that's what I read into those, <laughs> admittedly, only two articles. But, um, like, Eddie Jones is the great tournament coach. That's why That's why England hired him in the first place. The guy who g- gets success at World Cups gets it ordinary enough, but on the slide, no, sorry, good, but on the slide, Australian team into the 2003 final. Uh, a consultant to 2007 uh, South Africans the winners and then overseas Japanese beating South Africa in uh, 2015 
so this tournament coach, so Australia hired this tournament coach, and then what he does is he fucking blows up their their own tournament, and then gives everyone in in the fucking union an excuse of like, oh, I'm building for the next World Cup. Fucking pull the other one. It's got bells on. I'm going to use this World Cup to build for the next World Cup. If you buy that, like I've got two you bridges said before, I want to say. Sure, like where does that stop? Yeah. Four four years out, or why not eight years out? Yeah. You know, like, what, like this, what's your cycle? This so that, baloney, the job of the international coach, as we say in every podcast, is win today, win tomorrow. His best opportunity, he could have got Australia, you know, certainly to a quarterfinal, very possibly to a semi final. If he'd gone, this is what we need to do well in this tournament. And then directly after that, gone, these guys have done great service to Australia. Uh, I'm building for the Lions. That's going to be a massive benchmark, and then just change the team. But no, he had to. He had to fucking massively dismiss all the work that had gone before. Pick a load of guys who now may have no future. Like their confidence is going to be shattered. He's getting rid of the old guys anyway. He'll be getting rid of Nick White like that, slipper like that, and start again. Oh, and the Lions is going to be. Like, that Lions tour is going to be just a bore fest. Well, they could throw in some, a game in Fiji, maybe, to make it interesting. They Well, they, didn't they sign... The, oh, I can't remember the name of the guy they signed. They signed the league for, like, a million, a million a year. Yeah, 1.6 million per year, yeah. Like, uh, well, he hasn't really started yet. It's not, it's not a bit of value. Like, but like this, the money's just gone. This, but, like, the money's gone. Yeah, it's gone. And you're going, oh, because you really need a winger. Like, that's where you have... Corbetti and uh, Nawagana Toase. That's your strongest position. Yeah, so that was Hamish McLennan, I think, trying to get one over on, on rugby league. Yeah, he's so he's combative always, with rugby league. He's always going out and like being combative with rugby league. I mean, I think what you're saying about Australia, there's no World Cup in living memory where Australia doesn't finish first in a pool with Wales and Fiji in it. Yeah. And there's no World Cup in living memory where Australia don't beat Argentina in a knockout match. 100%. Like so you get that, the chance that, that gets them to the semi final of the yeah, World Cup. You get the chance to go to a semi final. You get the chance definitely to go to a quarter. Okay. Uh like the the probability of getting to the quarters. That's you know, given the way that Australia have been in the last five, ten years, five, eight years, that's an acceptable result. Getting to a semi, they'll be going, This is great, he's done a great job. He absolutely buoys his own credibility. And instead, like, I think, in my opinion, he has annihilated his coaching reputation. Absolutely annihilated. They should sack him. Uh, you know, they should uh, sack him as a punishment. I don't you also know. wonder, does he, does he have a performance clause? Which I'm sure he doesn't have a performance clause, but that, again, like, from a... As a, as a controller, as, as a governance mechanism, when you appoint the guy, you go... Look, it's no fault, no fee. If you don't get us yeah. past the first round here, like we can we can break this and like there's nothing to see here. Or if you lose, like, I don't know, pick a figure, like six matches, seven matches in a row, we can cut you and we don't owe you any comp. And all this kind of we're building, we're building, we're building. Because the classic call of any coach who's been at a club level who's been useless, when he's about to get lollied is he starts picking the under-20s because, you know, like he doesn't know them, they're disposable, and he can just point towards, 
on building for the future and giving young guys their shot. And like it's it is straight out of, you know, coach on skid row one oh one. You've been saying this for twenty five years. And you have coached teams. And I've seen it. Yeah. You see it, and like not just from one guy, you just you keep on seeing it. Yeah. And you're just there going, this guy knows he is lollied. And he knows this is the last opportunity he gets to get paid for another year because like coaching is win today, win tomorrow. But it's also moving. Yeah. It's also like being on the road for you know, every second year, every third year, every fourth year. And I think it's an indulgence. Like you need your family to buy into it with you. And move schools. Like to go on to the journey with you, move house, move, move country. Move country, yeah. Like, so it's it's a big portion, but it is absolutely, it is, what do they say about prayers? The last refuge of the scoundrel. Like it is the absolute scoundrel move is is picking the under 20s again. Oh, we're building for the future. Yeah. And you go, you are not. And you know, you are putting yourself first there. And maybe, you know, maybe every coach who does that is lying to himself. But like your job is just to get the best out of what you have. And like the best option isn't, it's not always someone under 20. Like you have to be able to get under 20s or very talented young players into the team. But you don't just put them all in at once and go, oh, this is, they'll automatically learn from a lot of players that don't automatically learn. You know, a lot of players just go in like, they mightn't have been the right player in the first place. So uh, yeah, I think it's. I think he should be sacked. Uh, in, like, but I bet you he won't. Like he'll. He'll. Sorry, I bet you he doesn't have that payoff. So he got big payoff from England, and he got a big payoff from Australia. It'll break his heart to have been so bad with Australia. Yeah. Anyway, like whether he gets lollied or not, now he'll he'll come back from it. But I don't. I, Look, I've been wrong about this all the way through, but I've got to say, like, he'll never be the same coach again with just the, the ignominy of, of how bad that World Cup is. Yeah. Because there'll be there'll certainly be players and there'll be sort of, I think, large swathes of the public who just won't forgive him. Yeah. And, you know, he 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 completely lost uh, in 2007, I think. Like, the Reds weren't a good team, but he was coaching them anyway. And, like, they won two games out of... 13 or 14 and super 96 rugby. points. Yeah, 89, 89 or 96 nil. Yeah. You know, and he, he resigned and now he clawed his way back up to the to the top of the game. You know, I don't think he has like he's he's a, incredibly resilient. He is so incredibly resilient, but he has accumulated so much baggage. And he's got more problems. He hasn't been able, he won't be able to go in to a you know a very strong South African team and act as a consultant or get parachuted into Saracens or, you know, go in and take over, um, go in and take over like a lot of foundations that Stuart Lancaster had put in. He's going to have to build his own foundations. Now, Rugby Australia are going to switch to a centralized uh, system, but that's unproven and it didn't happen for Ireland overnight. So it won't happen for Australia overnight either. Who do you think should replace Raj? Him? Raj. Like, you know, you could... Firstly, you're looking for, uh, you're looking for like as good a coach as you could get. Tick. You know. Secondly, somebody the Australians like a communicator. Tick. And like, they're the main things that for Raj, 
like it's someone who gets on well with Fijians. We know Raj gets on well with Fijians. <laughs> no, what I was saying is that it's it's a step up into test rugby with a country who is a like has won the World Cup twice, but they're at such a low web. Uh, it's like I, I think he'd be low to lead La Rochelle, but test rugby is is test rugby. If he, I think it's it's always a step up for no matter what club you're at. Especially if, it, no, coaching Australia is a step up no matter what club you're at. Um, It'd be such a role reversal um, from the days of the uh, Northern Hemisphere teams desperately trying to find Southern Hemisphere coaches who yeah. would come and teach them their magical ways. For us to send one down there, uh, he I'm sure we all saw that a very interesting interview he did with uh, Jim Hamilton. Jim Hamilton. Um, he sounds like he could build a. <clears throat> he'd be a good man because he's prickly enough, and he he doesn't mind making, saying what he thinks about people. I think he'd be a good man to build a backs against the wall Aussie yeah. team, and he obviously has a relationship with um, Skelton. Will Skelton. Uh, uh, I Take just, him out of La Rochelle, maybe move him back to New South Wales. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think another part of what they need to do is. Uh, like their domestic competition is them just losing to the all black teams or the Kiwi teams over and over again. And they have these two teams in Melbourne and Western Australia, which are just, I mean, they're both, they've both been crap since they started. They've always been crap. And like, they're not rugby tens. And it's like, I don't know why it's very hard to say, okay, you can only have rugby in these three parts. It's kind of, it's short sighted, obviously. But like if there's a, if they can only have three good teams, then there should be the three teams in Queensland, New South Wales, and Canberra, or maybe they should maybe they should keep the force going and say, "Sorry, Melbourne, you've got you've got AFL. You can just do that instead." Yeah, bear in mind there's a twenty almost twenty seven million people living in Australia, like it's it's about five times as populous as Ireland. Now, I know the distances are bigger, etc., but like they they lose players, they they're constant, and it is a wage from rugby as all. Well. We lose the athletes too. Uh, AFL and NRL you know those are pro sports taken but like rugby in Ireland is competing with exactly the same thing we lose we lose our potential players to especially football but also hurling you know and it doesn't matter that they're not paid the players still like a big portion of Irish athletes ball playing athletes go into those sports so it's the same thing like you have to do more with what you have and you know I look at you know, New South Wales and, and uh, Queensland, especially, you're going like, they're similar to to Leinster and Munster. Like they have, and, and rugby is similar, rugby union is similar in Australia to how it is in Ireland. You know, it is mostly like it's, it's backbone or it's core. It's people who come out of essentially fee-paying rugby schools. Like the Aussies, the Aussie under-20s actually got to the Junior World Championship final in 2019. Like they hadn't been there in a long time, if ever before. But like, they're not pathetic. Like the Aussie schools are generally a good team when they tour, but their development of those players from, you know, eighteen through to now they're up already fucking playing for the Wallabies by the time they're nineteen. <laughs> but you know, you just look at like the first thing actually before they hire Raj, is that Hamish McLennan should go. Oh, can we pay Philip Brown to be a consultant to us for six months? And look at how our union works. Because Phil Wall is their CEO now. 
like Delad is probably your age. He is, yeah. He yeah. was the captain of the team that played against Gibbo and those guys in the '96 tour. You know, so they're both at open sides. Gibney was the open side captain in Ireland. Yeah, yeah. So Philip Brown is has twenty years' experience in the job. That's that's what they're looking to echo. So Philip Brown can help them point out the mistakes that Irish rugby made. Uh, and make sure that, or just tell them that Australia rugby shouldn't make those. Like, that's a key thing. If they're going to try and find out how they did it, like how somebody else did it just by going, you know, thinking about it, they don't get there. They're Australians. Okay, we buried the lead enough. I think Ireland beats South Africa this week as well. <laughs> uh, let me ask you, as you were at the game on Saturday night, how did Ireland not lose that game? The funny thing was that they didn't seem as like losing it. And the comparison that I gave, and I caveated it by saying I don't go to very many GA matches, was that I remember being at a Dublin Cork semi-final, football semi-final, around 2010, possibly 2011, and watching as Dublin looked good at halftime and then st- Dumbled a bit in the beginning of the second half, and then the hill got more nervous, and then the dub started playing worse, and then the hill got really anxious, and the dub started playing even worse, and then the hill got absolutely miserable. And like by that stage, it didn't matter what the dubs done. Cork had won, like Dublin had just, or to be more accurate, like Dublin had just beaten themselves. And that symbiotic relationship between crowd and player, I probably have never seen it more readily expressed. But I've been in the cop looking at a Mignolet and go, just thinking, what a horrible job where 15 to 20,000 people stand behind or sit behind you just like thinking that you're absolutely shit. And a lot of them <laughs> vocalize it. And you just there going like, man, I know footballers get paid a lot, but like he is earning his money because like the only other one, I've also been in Liverpool watching Jared Leto play on the wing. Sebastian was, Leto. I always <laughs> call him. Jared Leto. I will always call him Jared. And he was so bad that the crowd started feeling sympathetic for him. And I went, he must want the pitch to open up and swallow him. Uh, Rafa, like, Rafa took him off half time. The, <laughs> the, ball, the ball would come in towards him and it would bounce off by five yards. All right, lad, good first touch. And you're just there going, that was horrible. Like in five-a-side, playing with 40-something-year-olds, man, that's lousy. I might as well squeeze in. My, I was on the cop on Sunday afternoon, and like basically Liverpool, the game went into a little bit of a torpor after about 55 minutes. The ref either gave a very soft foul against us or didn't give a foul against us in the midfield. And just the crowd set off into the most angry version of, oh, when the Reds go marching in. And the whole team just woke up after that. <laughs> and it started playing well. It was like, oh, yeah, yeah. The referee pissed us off. That's what we needed to fucking actually kick into gear. Anyway, go on. So at 3-0 down against the Springboks, I was thinking to myself, oh, you don't want to give these guys a lead to defend. Mm. This is just not, like, this is a bad look. Even at three, and you're thinking, shit, if they get to six... Six too many, and the, the tackle for me was Bundy's tackle where he sprang back onto his feet. But like, it was it was the lack of penalties that they gave the South Africans. It was the defensive effort. It was the fact that even under like such duress, and the crowd really reacted to it. Like the crowd 
didn't get the chance to become despondent and the team brought the crowd with them. But there's, there's, there's this weird, you could so easily see it capitulate because that's what happens to Ireland so often in matches against big, big Southern Hemisphere opposition. It's what's happened so often in the World Cup. And this time round, they didn't. And the crowd really felt that and like had was supporting the effort all the way through because it was genuine effort. And you sort of thought to yourself, you know what, even if even if they concede like a six or even an eight or even a ten, the fact that it's been so competitive, even though ten hill is an absolute disaster against the Springboks, like, you know, you've got to score four times to to overtake them, or like, you know, three if you get the two tries. They they showed I just got back to it, like the competitiveness. So going like a three nil down and then Bundy made the break and then they scored. Um it was it was febrile. But like it was it was the most it was certainly one of the most intense matches I've ever been at. Like Ireland, France in the World Cup in 2015, when the third of the team was just broken or like goaded or whatever. And it was indoors in like what is my Cardiff is just the best stadium in the world for watching a rugby match. Um, it was incredibly intense. Like, it was gladiatorial. Like, the, the words that sprung to mind, I don't know if it is gladiatorial or gladiatorial, but whatever, gladiatorial. Gladiatorial. I think it's it the first one, yeah. And intense were the, were the two adjectives that sprung to mind because it was a thoroughly engaging match. Like, at halftime, they, they ran in. And I was like, oh, it's not that cold. To, so it's not that hot that they need to take a water break. And I was like, oh, they're going into the tunnel. It's like, is it half time? Like it is. And normally I know where it is. Like, but I wasn't even watching the clock. You're just, you're just watching the match. You're, you're so engaged. Um, like Ireland's call, everyone was just belting it out. And say at the the Yokohama match against Scotland. It's a lot of people who are in Asia, or a lot of people more so who are in Thailand, or not, uh, not Thailand, uh, Australia, New Zealand, who are coming up for that tournament, and then just sort of younger people. It, it, it wasn't your, the demograph was younger than is typically at those matches. Mm. And like, it's 20 some degrees, and like, most people are pie eyed. And it was, it was yeah, kind of like nine a party. o'clock in the like, evening. You know, it's nine o'clock in the evening, and like, and people were sitting here on their like, holidays, random seats, and they were holidays. And like, it was savage crack of a match. Whereas the match in Paris, like, was, was again an older crowd, but like, it wasn't exclusively older, but everyone was on for it. Like, everyone, even the older guys, like, that they're on holidays. And, uh, and like, I'm an older guy. <laughs> um, <laughs> And you're not old, but, but I'm not old. West Stand, like yeah, West Stand, Lansdowne Road, sort yeah. of measure. And there was just this huge engagement before the game. Certainly, certainly for the certainly for the anthems, but even before the match, like there was huge engagement. Like there's, um, there's a warmth towards this team which isn't exclusive to them, but, um. I think there's like there is a feeling of goodwill because the team is like the team keeps on reciprocated. I don't know. Yeah, the team, keep, the team, the keeps, team keeps on delivering. On trying, keeps on keeps on trying. Yeah, you know? and they're so they're always talking about what a good vibe there is in camp. They keep on well, they, they keep on winning is the main thing. Yeah, you know. Yeah. yeah. So the coach is a coach that everyone admires, from like little baby girls to eight year old 
West Ham people. Everyone admires him. You know, he brings so much. They win all the time. They they win in adverse situations. Like I'm thinking particularly against Scotland, away in Murrayfield where we had, you know, all these forward injuries in the first half. That's a game they could have got away from us. They come back when they're down, like beaten well by the, the All Blacks in the first test and come back. They play amazing rugby like they did in, to beat France in Lansdowne Road this year. They deliver, even if they don't, get their A game out, which they did at the weekend, which they did against England. So there's so much to admire. You know, they're a very admirable team. There doesn't seem... uh, They don't... It's just I think they're admirable. You know, there's a lot to admire about them. But again, it's so much of it is winning. Win, 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 win. And somewhere along the lines, when Moneyball came out... It seemed that it seemed to me because again, like the, this, is my personality, this is my bias that like sport. This was the final chapter of sport that like the the level of statistical analysis and the ability to break down the component parts into what made a successful team uh, meant that this it, it was always going to be thus. And now all we're talking about is the vibes, <laughs> you know, and, and yeah. And the, what's that word? The intangibles. And in, what was it? Kissing Susie Colber? Was that the one? Like, that was, in, yeah. Intangibles were what were dismissed. You know, you, you talk about a player. And again, we're talking 10 years ago, maybe 12 years ago, when everything will be stats-based. And you just remit like loads and loads of stats. Yeah. And anything that was not stats-based was just dismissed as the intangibles. Yeah. And it was just like, the intangibles. But it's like Wenger comes over from Japan and he goes, everyone's eating like fucking pies and pints. I'm going to make these lads eat peas and fucking pasta or whatever. And then it's like, oh, this Arsenal team, they're not hung over anymore. And suddenly they're really good. And then everyone fixes their diet. And And everyone bans ketchup. What's what's the next? Yeah, or reintroduce ketchup. (laughs) What's the next edge? So then everyone got the statistics. The people who led with them got their, you know, they got their wins while while they led with them. Then everyone has the statistics. So you get to this point where it clearly, and I think um, you talked about this, it's just about the vibes. Clearly, Andy Farrell, one of the the best things about him is that like, he never complains about anything. He just goes, oh no, a lot of adversity. And even though though he must be furious about some of these things happening, but he's just, he he doesn't let anyone hear, hear him whining, right? So by comparison, I mentioned that Ronan O'Gara interview. And he mentioned that he had a no dickheads policy in their squad. And I thought, I noticed he said in the squad. (laughs) (laughs) But anyway, you can see how he was able to bond with Batia and say, go over to Fiji and understand why someone from Fiji, where like their lifestyle is different and like punctuality, maybe not as high a value as like courteousness or like, you know, being around your people. Like, so he's able to understand that he's, and he's clearly built his forges incredibly strong bond. And it's so big. And it, it made me think, when the All Blacks end this lineage of like classic patrician All Black coaches and they get in ultimate vibes master Scott Robertson, like the Kiwis are going to roar back, I think. And like, I think Razzie is a guy who oh, does big both. Vibes. Does both. Like, uh, Charisma 18. Yeah. Evil. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know. <laughs> you ask the question, yeah. but you know. Like, yeah. Anyway, 
So we won that game. I mean, I watched the game again. I said to you after 25 minutes, we watched it together oh, on a words. TV broadcast. And uh, I said after 25 minutes, nothing is going to plan. Yeah. And like, I watched it again and it just seemed like there were a whole passage of the game where it was flurry after flurry by both teams. And like so much, like no, there's so much not scoring for absolutely ages, yeah. but so many minor dramatic incidents where every turnover is just enormous. Every penalty, every missed penalty is is enormous. But like I went for a pee when the first long penalty was going, thinking, well, they'll take a while over this. Faf doesn't really take, take a while over his kicks. So I heard the, oh, and I, you know, the, you know, you hear the, the quality of commentary will give you a very, a clear idea of what's happening. I was like, why is there an attack happening? There should have been a penalty or a 22 happening. And I, and I raced back in and that's where the try came from. So I think that I just want to like that whole, they get a five points from their, one of their miss 11 points yeah. off the kick, kicking tee. Like that was a huge, massive 50 yard gain they took yeah. from something, essentially a massive accident. Yeah. Like there was a lot of slugging it out. Uh, when I say slugging, that makes it sound slow. But kind of there was got, a lot sorry, of punching just, and counter Just got through the maths there. No, we're not meant to interrupt each other. But no, just got through the maths. So they missed the 11 points off the tee. So if they hadn't scored the try, they, would have, they wouldn't have had the opportunity to take the two that they missed. So they missed... What are we... Missed three, we got they missed, five. They missed three. So they missed nine points through penalties, but they got five back. Yeah. So they missed four through penalties. Yeah. And the if, if you're trading yeah, off, like, like the missing nine... Is that you by scoring the try, which came from a, a penalty, you get the opportunity for the two. Yeah. So it's that's, that's but also, not exactly how it works. But no, that's but it's kind close. Of what and the conversion is the only one that doesn't affect the outcome of the next play. So if the conversion goes over or not, the only thing that changes is the scoreboard. It starts with the same team restarting it. Someone tweeted at us, are you, are you screaming at your TV for not taking the points? We kicked to the corner. Obviously lost a lot of line outs early on. And... I mean, I wasn't because I was going like, this is not a knockout match. This is still kind of a test match. Yeah, we were sort of like that That added the hill. You go, no, it's just a group game. It's just another group game. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. But it is just another group game because as it turns out, like we have to beat Scotland to, to certainly qualify anyway. Yeah. So like the Scottish games seems like it was always going to be the decider. And that's how it's turned out. Like Tonga had to beat Scotland for it not to be the decider. Sadafka took kicks from halfway line mm-hmm. rather than punting to the corner until the last minute. They only had the two two late mall attacks. One we gave away a penalty from, and one we uh, collapsed, and the mall was deemed dead. And even though the ball seemed to be coming available for Ryanak, um, what do you think was behind those decisions? Their weakness is kick goal kicking and their strength is the mall. What do they do? So Faf has kicked goals before in this tournament and is a good kicker. Like he has the length. So I I think that South Africa, despite uh improvements in their backline play with Libok at 10, are still at 369, get ahead of you and then stop you scoring. Um so that's the biggest thing for us as Andy, you were saying beforehand, is like not to fall two scores behind South Africa, which Scotland did. Uh, like the way that's, I didn't think that this Africans would be able to disrupt uh, our line at the way they did Scotland's in the second half, but they did exactly that. But we just didn't give them as many kickable penalty chances. Those those kicks are 
like Faf de Klerk is his second second string goal kicker and asking him to kick like the longest kicks you get in the entire game they're low percentage kicks so returning briefly to what we talked about is how many points you left on the pitch those are 1.5% goal kicks you have a 50% chance of getting them like even Francois Stein actually although he had a monster boot often didn't land long range kicks you know people try too hard to kick them in such a long distance they lose their dis or they lose their uh, direction so with those ones saying that they left them behind it's like two of the box kicks there the conversion should have been a good a good goal kicker gets that nine 8.5 times out of 10 and the same with uh, the first kick he, he the first penalty missed so Goes a good way out as well, though. Yeah, so going with those, going with those kicks, I think it's just a return to like let's get ahead and rely on our defense. But even if you miss them, it's a twenty-two dropout to the opposition, and it, I think the match that I consider as the template to how to beat the Springboks in terms of how well it was executed was the Kiwis in this in the twenty fifteen semi final, and. Although I've never seen it written about that match, I did read McCaw's book when he talks about playing for the Crusaders against the Bulls and he talks about Jarrah Payne throwing an intercept and you're sort of going, wow, like he he named him. Yeah. <laughs> and the Crusaders' plan was do not play any rugby in our own half. Just kick the ball into their half, contest the kicks. When we get down to the 22, we'll have the opportunity to score because we can score tries and we'll get the opportunity to take kicks. But do not play anything in your own half where you're going to get tackled, you're going to get caught behind your support, you're going to have to do something stupid and either turn turn it over or give away a penalty. Just do not put yourself under that pressure. And... Jared Payne, as I said, threw that intercept and that was it. Like, it was game over. The, the, the Bulls were too far ahead for the Crusaders that then they had to chase it, so they had to take more risks. So in that 2015 semifinal, the All Blacks just kicked and kicked and kicked and turned the Springboks back and back and back and then eventually scored tries late because they were just so good. But they had to be so disciplined to break the box they had to they had to really trust in their ability so look i thought we should have kicked our points because mm. again that's my bias in the first few minutes but it's it's strangely enough one of the few teams that i can understand going for the seven because you're in their half and you have to play as much of the game in their half as is possible that's that's just the way to play against South African teams because again to go back to another book, Eddie Jones was saying when he was in charge, he just goes, geez, like I knew these guys were good. Ta- I didn't realize, I didn't understand how much of their culture is predicated in defense, how much they relish it. So that's that's the trade-off playing South Africa, that if you are in their half, you're de facto attacking, but that's what they want you to do. Like they're they're, they're an incredibly difficult rugby team to beat in... Kind of the same way, and Brazil's World Cup soccer is is less successful. That, but like every time around, the team that beats Brazil sort of, they're probably not the best team in the match. That just the Brazilians have squandered too many opportunities because, and again, like this is my own opinion, the Brazilians are the best footballers in the world, just as as a bunch. Like there's a lot of them, but like you see a Brazilian in the Premiership, they're just like 
they they operate at a really good level. It's a really competitive environment to come through, but they understand soccer. Like their their skills are really good, but it's also like that sort of tactical awareness that they have, and that competitiveness that they had, and like the South Africans are. I don't know, like because I would have sort of said the same about the New Zealanders. There's maybe the South Africans are the Uruguayans of soccer, and there's just more of them, you <laughs> mm-hmm. know. But like they're defensively resolute. They're really physical. But they like defending more than attacking. And they're really clever with it. Like they un- yeah. they understand it. Like they they have this. And they've real, grown up with the game. From they, they've generation yeah, yeah, to generation. They just, they, 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 it's just it's been passed. It's it's in them. They yeah. just understand it. Like but like I would say that that sounds like uh tripe, but I, I genuinely mean that. Like they they would rather defend than attack. And they prefer tackling. Like it's how they play. Like they're more there's more emphasis on their game than being a great defender than being a great attacker. Like, or else you'd have Kane and Moody in a 13 instead of Jesse Creel. You know, you'd have Andre Esterhuizen in probably a 12 instead of Damien Diolende. Uh, like, they are a team that relishes... Like, one of the, the, like the... The number of huge hits in that game, the two tackles on Mack Hansen after high balls, like, perfectly judged high balls. One, he got ragged off by even Edsmith, and there was a second one where he got double hit by... Uh, Kitschoff and Sia Khaleesi at the same time. You held on to the ball both times, earned retained the ball both times. So that's one of the things which, when people were looking at it and saying, what a high-intensity match, what a high-caliber match. The kick was perfect, the catch was perfect, the tackle was perfect, the ball retention was perfect. Like, at the highest possible speed and intensity, all of those skills from both sides held up. And that was like, that, you know, they weren't just the only ones putting in amazing tackles. Ronan Kelleher's early tackle on uh, Valemsa, James Lowe's tackle on Eben Etzebeth, which was, you know, sort of the, sort of the stuff of legends, basically. Getting low under Eben Etzebeth on the charge, picking him up, putting him on your shoulder, and then getting the, Ball turnover. the classic choke tackle turnover off it. And Etzebeth gave up. You know, he knew that he was not getting back to ground here. I've like Josh van der Fleer on the ball, then gives him park. Then Peter Man, you just see us flooding in like moths to a flame. No, the, the players knew I understood understood what a big moment that would be. To see this big monster getting held up. And I think it's it's probably that level of concentration that I've just never seen from an Irish team before. That the emotion was always there. And the the way that Ireland used to be plumossed by the English was the, oh, we knew, you know, they'd give us an hour of frenzy and we knew they'd be exhausted in the last 20 minutes and we'd just run like, you know, 30 points past them. And part of that was, was physical conditioning, but I think part of it was just concentration. And the reason I say that is that you, you can kind of see it come apart in other sports, probably more obviously in individual sports where like tennis, where there, there's a scoring system where like both teams will start off or both players will start off at, at low ball. And oftentimes the first set is the most competitive, but mm-hmm. like once, once you're down one set to love, like Djokovic wins. Yeah, pretty much, pretty <laughs> yeah. much until Djokovic doesn't win when Alcaraz wins and you see Djokovic win again and again and again, you sort of go like, how does anybody beat this guy? And then bit by bit, you see him being dismantled by Alcaraz from a set down and you're there going, wow, that's how it happens. But like Alcaraz has to concentrate all the way through. But you see golfers also go into the last day or like try to lead from the front and it's just really, really hard. Yeah. And the fact that like 
Brian Harmon did it for the Open, you're sort of going, he was he was a good bit ahead, but like he he had to keep doing it. Like it's it's really gutsy. And you go, Jesus, like this guy was has been in and around a lot of tournaments and he's got a hot putter, but like it's it's not easy. You know, there, there's more guys that will just fall away and try to lose that because they've had a good Saturday or they've yeah. had a good Friday. And they just, they they can't keep that level of concentration. And then because that was played at uh, Birkdale, wasn't it? Um, Royal Birkdale, Royal, yeah. Or Liverpool. Royal Liverpool in Birkdale. Sorry. Um, the reference was off in the Tiger Woods just like not playing driver off. And you go like, he didn't play driver all tournament. And you're sort of going like that bloke was unbeatable because he was like he was like this hypnotized robot who would just go out iron sex iron, robot iron sex robot <laughs> just like iron iron and just hit like down the middle down the middle and Ireland have that level of concentration so I think like the Gary Keegan thing is talk about the intangibles like oh. talk about like you're not sure what this guy does but it works you're yeah. sort of going like how do you stats this one away but his whatever he does is powerful stuff. Strong voodoo. Strong voodoo. In terms of the tournament, what do you read into it? Huge for Ireland because the confidence that you get from winning a big match like that makes you a better team. Mm. And it means that it means that Ireland are stronger favourites to beat Scotland now than than they were. And it means it's more likely that South Africa play France. And they will play a phantom of the opera, Andre du, like Antoine Dupont. Mm. But nonetheless, I'll try Ryu. Nonetheless, yeah, phantom of the opera, Andre Ryu. Bend against this. <laughs> um, it like they'd be playing against the home team in a match that you're not really sure how the best player in the world is going to adopt to it. Like he's, he, he's, he's, he's impossible to know what he's going to do. You just, you don't know what DuPont is going to do. Um, no, I like, I, that's such a huge, it, like I say, I don't just repeating it, but it's such a huge unknown. Like sir, that says he'll be back. Uh, I think like he, he will be back. Yeah. It's just a matter of how long he lasts. Yeah. But there's there's no doubt in my mind he will start. Yeah. Like this is this is his tournament at his time. They haven't dropped him from the squad. It's it's going into the knockout. He's not going to want to miss it. Mm. Just they just put a mask on him. They'll give him a shot, and he will just go with it. Yeah. And like that, that if if you have to play a different game though to what he usually does, because he can't know. he can't run into contact with a fucking broken face. He can't if he can't feel your face. <laughs> It's not advisable to, but like he, like this is kind of the moment he was born for. Yeah, I agree. I agree he'll play with a broken face unless there's literally. Look, it it mightn't work out. This is the same sort of like attitude that made me sort of think, you know, Australia would beat Wales. You just got, no, like all the evidence points to the fact that they're Or do you remember when Henry Shefflin tore his ACL and and tried to play like two weeks afterwards in the, in the all Ireland hurling final and it's just like, Oh, I can't do it. Yeah, because no one can do it. It's not you, Henry. <laughs> don't like, don't sweat it. Uh, yeah, yeah. You sometimes, sometimes there is like there's a a mind over matter thing doesn't work. Um, but like some of those, like the, you know, jumping the gun there, really. But 
as you say, the confidence buoy that like you look at I looked at Wales just getting more and more confident as they realise like Yes. Oh, we are just gonna beat the life out of these lads. You know, it doesn't matter. We will we we're like this game was a starting and it like some of their hits that they took early on, Liam Williams took a hit from uh Karevi, such a huge hitter. And he stayed down. You're going, oh, is Liam Williams going off? Dan Bigger went off. And you're going, you can see there is a wobble. Like, you got to 10 6, and they had a chance to take it to 10 9. And, and like, they had line break and everything like that. And when that didn't pass, like, you just see Wales getting confidence. By the end, they were like, they could have tried anything and it would have panned out. They took so much confidence in that game, and they'll take so much out of that game. So I think it's something that we've said repeatedly about the World Cup because it's true is that you don't have to be the best team in the world. You have to be the best team in the tournament. And that that momentum feeds itself. And it's not even that you have to win every single game because obviously South Africa have won the tournament twice while losing a match in the first round. But it it doesn't, doesn't hurt you to win matches, win big matches at all. Um, and you keep doing that until there's no matches left to win. So, I think it's I think it's a great win for Ireland. Like I think that they go in to a break um, before they come back to camp, and when they come back to camp, they must really be looking forward to going back in. Mm. They must really be looking forward to going back into that environment where they're seeing each other, and it's. Like the th- one of the other things about being at the match is it's so bloody late. Like th- the guys finish their match at eleven o'clock, and you're thinking to yourself, like, when do they get to sleep? Like, Don't when know. does when does that happen for them? Um, that, but that's that's prime time on TV, and in, in in the top fourteen, they play those matches. The big matches of the weekend is played in a Sunday evening, mm. and like you're there on a Sunday evening looking for the results and you're going like, Jesus, they barely made it into the second half. I'm going to bed. Like, this match yeah. isn't over. Sunday night, you say Sunday evening, I say Sunday night. Sunday night. Yeah. So, whatever it was like on, on Sunday, they weren't going to be doing too much rugby-wise. They were really just in the aftermath knowing they're going into their break because there's a two-week gap and they're sort of going, grand, like I've got my stuff planned with whatever I'm going to do with my family or whatever we're going to do together as a group of lads, depending on where you are in your, in your life. And... Then coming, looking forward to getting back into camp is that like you can't wait, like it's 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 brilliant, you know, like it's 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 an absolute buzz, and that's an incredible environment to train. It's an incredible environment to do anything in, anything in. Like just when when that harmony is there and everything is humming and everything is taken, and like you're not in work going, why do we make that moronic decision to take on this job? Or yeah. like, why do I have to work with this guy on this job? Or why do I have to listen to this political shite? Like, they don't have any of that. They are absolutely homing. And that's... Yeah, let's do like, this job the best we can. Put yourself, everything into it. All of these guys are going to help you by doing their best. Like, what a good feeling. I got a Brooklyn fit. Sister